Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Okay, so this is week two in our foundation series. And if you were here last week, we talked about what does it mean to be a Christian? What the gospel is all about, how we can be saved. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna elaborate, we're gonna expand on those topics and we're gonna talk first of all about assurance. The whole idea that you can be sure and secure in your salvation, you don't have to worry about losing eternal life once you have it. And then we're gonna talk about rewards, both here in this life and in the life to come. So let's dive in here, let's start with assurance. We believe assurance of salvation, knowing for sure that you have eternal life and that that can't be taken away from you, you can't lose that, is essential to the Christian life. Now, why is this so important? Well, first of all, if you lack assurance of salvation, that can lead to fear, it can lead to frustration, it can lead to a constant state of worry. I mean, you're not sure if your next sin is gonna be the one that makes God hate you, take away your salvation. You can't really get traction and feel like you're growing in your walk with Jesus since according to the Bible, we all sin, right? We continue to sin even as Christians. And second, a big part of our relationship with God is really being grateful to God for what he's done for us. But if we lack assurance of salvation, then it's impossible to be grateful to God for our eternal destiny because in the back of our minds, we're thinking, well, we might lose that or or maybe we don't even have it in the first place. And also a lack of assurance leads to some bad thinking, right? If, if If I do enough good deeds, then I'll prove that I'm a Christian and then I'll get to go to heaven. But as we talked about last week, that's not the gospel at all. That's a very works-based salvation. So let's take a look at what the Bible actually says about these topics. We'll start in John 5, verse 24. And in this passage, Jesus makes three distinct promises, a past, present, and future promise. He says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense and will not be judged, future tense, but has crossed over from death to life, past tense. So this verse says that if you believe, you have, present tense, eternal, everlasting, never-ending life. So if you have eternal life that'll last forever, but then somehow that's taken away from you, then you never had eternal life in the first place. And then Jesus promises here as well that you, okay, you in the future will not be judged. That's a future promise if you believe now. Okay, if somehow you would lose your salvation, then you would be judged. He also says that in the past, you have crossed over from death to life. So past, present, and future, Jesus promises that the moment you believe, you have eternal life. Now, let's uh, take a look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I got to ask you, what is left out of this equation? I mean, is there anything not covered in this passage that could potentially separate you from Jesus? No. I mean, this covers time, matter, space, everything in between. And then there's John 3, 16. 
says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You might circle have eternal life. If you currently have eternal life, that can't be lost. Let me illustrate this for you. Let's say that the Hershey company gives me a call and says, Brian, we have some really good news for you. We're gonna promise you an eternal, never-ending supply of York peppermint patties, okay? That would be awesome, okay? And what would that mean? First of all, it would mean that in about a month, I'll probably weigh 250, 300 pounds, something like that. But second, it means that if they keep their promise to me, I'm gonna keep getting York peppermint patties. And if they stop giving them to me, it means they were lying, right? They didn't keep that promise. Well, God promises that when you believe, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. And you can't lose that or else you never had eternal life. You had some kind of life, but not eternal life. Now, there is a whole branch of theology out there that insists individuals have to do works. They have to maybe get their act together before they can even come to know God. And this actually flies in the face of about 150 passages in Scripture that insist salvation is an absolutely free gift that's attained by faith and faith alone. But there's still a lot of people who teach it. In fact, sometimes people will say, you can't even be sure if you're a Christian until you prove it by acting like it. So if your life doesn't look like we think it should look, you probably aren't saved. And so then people start manufacturing, start forcing good works to prove that they're saved. Or maybe they start serving to prove they're saved rather than out of gratitude for what God has done. Or maybe they're kind to other people so God will see them doing good things and love them more. It becomes a very works-based salvation. It's not at all what God intended. Former Dallas Theological Seminary professor Zane Hodges once responded to this whole belief system by comparing a father's response to his son with this line of thinking. And I want you to listen to this. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this, it would be difficult to imagine a conversation like this between a father and his son. The son says, dad, am I really your son? And the father replies, well, young man, it depends on how you behave. I mean, if you really are my son, you will show this by doing the things I tell you to do. If you have my nature inside of you, you can't help but be obedient. To which the son asks, but what if I disobey you a lot, dad? And the father answers, then you have every reason to doubt that you are truly my son. Hodges continues, what sort of a father would talk to his son like that? Would he not rightly be accused of cruelty for dealing in this fashion with the anxieties of his child? At a moment like this, is not his child's most urgent need, a sense of acceptance and parental love. But to withhold this acceptance in order to secure his boy's obedience is to traffic in rejection and fear. People, God wants you to be sure that when you believe in him for salvation, you are his eternally. And nothing can change that. That That's not going to be taken away from you. You don't have to worry about that. And when you get to that point, there is joy, there is peace, and there is great freedom just knowing that God loves you for who you are. Nothing can change that. Now, once you get assurance of salvation, then you have to ask the question, what's next? I mean, are all the good works I do for nothing? I mean, why even bother to do good things if I'm already secure in my relationship? I'm going to heaven. Well, that leads us to our second main topic today, rewards. And we're gonna spend most of our time talking about rewards. And when we talk about rewards, what we're talking about here is the blessings that God gives to his people, either when we're still living here on earth or in the future in heaven. And I gotta tell you, the Bible isn't super clear on what exactly those rewards are gonna look like, but we know they're gonna be awesome. 
I mean, Jesus says this in Revelation twenty two twelve. 12. He says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Okay, so these rewards are gonna be determined by what we do with the life we have here on earth. Now, when we read the Bible, we come across a lot of passages, a whole bunch of passages in scripture that talk about doing good works. And here's the problem. A lot of times it can be really easy to read some of those passages and and go, hmm, this seems to deal with salvation. This, This seems to refer to going to heaven or going to hell. And that's where a lot of people get confused. And it's where this whole concept of faith plus works comes from. But if you look at the scriptures and if you read a passage of scripture and it indicates in some way that works are involved, I'm telling you, you can rest assured it's not talking about eternal salvation, heaven or hell. It's talking about rewards or consequences here on earth or rewards or lack of rewards in heaven. And here's an example for you. This is Paul writing. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do we have any wrongdoers in here? Would you raise your hand if you're a wrongdoer? Raise it up really high so I can say, oh, good, I'm not alone. Excellent. You're in trouble. Okay. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, clearly, this verse is all about works, what we do, right? In fact, Paul says wrongdoers at the very beginning here. And this verse says absolutely nothing about faith. And yet Paul says these people are not going to enter the kingdom of God, right? No, he actually doesn't say that. He doesn't use the word enter here, does he? He uses the word inheritance. People, those are two entirely different terms. And back in Bible days, they would have immediately caught that. They knew that term inherit. They knew exactly what that meant. But even us today, we know the difference, right? Entering a house is different than inheriting a house, right? I mean, if they're the same thing, I would love to enter into some of your homes, right? Just invite me over, please. That would be sweet, Hey, I'm here. Put me in your will, baby, right? (laughs) Now, entering a house is different than inheriting a house. Entering the kingdom is different than inheriting blessings within the kingdom. Paul's talking about rewards here, an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Once we receive the gift of eternal life, we get to enter into heaven. But anytime that word inherit is used in the Bible, it always speaks of getting something extra special, a little special blessing. So if you want more inheritance, more blessings in the life to come, that's going to be determined by what you do with your time here on earth. So rewards are very important, people. How we live our lives here is going to determine our future one day. Now, in order to really be convinced of this and live our lives for rewards, I think we first have to grasp a fundamental truth that many people struggle with, and it's this simple. God wants us to desire rewards. How much do you desire rewards? God wants you to desire rewards. In the Bible, there are basically three motivations for serving God. You ready for this? Three motivations. They can all be boiled down to this. A love for God, a fear of God or fear of punishment, and promises of rewards. And when you ask people, well, what's the most common motivator that God uses to stir mankind, to get them going? Most people will say, well, I would guess in the Old Testament, it's most often a fear of God, fear of punishment. 
And over in the New Testament, I would guess it's, it's most often a love for God, being grateful for what Jesus has done for us. But if you study your Bibles by a landslide in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the most common theme that God uses to motivate his people is the promise of rewards, either here in this life or in the life to come. Now, I got to ask, does that surprise you, right? God's primary motivation for securing obedience is rewards. Why is that? Well, I think it's because God created us to seek the greater good for ourselves. It's just how we're wired. Seeking rewards is not a bad thing at all. It's not selfish. It's not sinful. It's how God made us as human beings. Blaise Pascal once said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now, back in Pascal's day, that word happiness, it can be translated as joy, pleasure, contentment, whatever brings the greater good. And so I think the question we gotta ask ourselves is this, is this universal desire to pursue pleasure selfish? Is it sinful? Or did God put that in our hearts? Which one is it? Well, I'm convinced the Bible says God put it in your heart to pursue joy and pleasure. And I know there are some who would say the Christian life has little to do with being pleased, that our service to God is one of duty and obedience. But I wanna challenge that thinking this morning with this simple statement. It is not seeking pleasure in life that causes us problems. It's where we seek our pleasure. Let me say that again. It's not seeking pleasure in life that causes us problems. It's where we seek our pleasure. The problem happens when we try to find that pleasure apart from God in things God never intended for us. God wired us to pursue what's best for ourselves, but it's when we start going after those rewards in bad ways that gets us into trouble. The question we gotta ask is, are we going after what the world says is best for us or what God says is best for us? For example, take a look at Matthew 6, 19 to 21. <clears throat> Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, God wants us to desire his rewards, his good things. When we're storing up treasures on earth, those will ultimately be what? Worthless, right? I mean, this passage says they're gonna be destroyed. Destroyed by moths, destroyed by vermin. They could be stolen. They won't last. But eternal rewards are just that. They are eternal. I mean, we all seek joy and pleasure in life. The question we need to ask is, where is God in my pursuit of pleasure? Where is God in the whole mix? In 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul instructs us to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Is God concerned about your enjoyment? Absolutely. It says right here, he richly provides for our enjoyment. Now, all of this supports my first point. I believe God created us to pursue pleasure. God created you to pursue pleasure, but he expects us to fulfill that desire properly for example, 
Our desire for food, that's a good thing. Gluttony is not. Our desire for sex, that is a God-given desire. That is a good thing. Fulfilling it outside of marriage is not. You see, it's the way we go about pursuing pleasure that makes all the difference between God-honoring enjoyment and self-focused sin. C.S. Lewis once made this powerful remark. Listen carefully to this. This is such a great quote. If there lurks in our minds the notion that to desire our own good and enjoyment is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Wow, we are far too easily pleased. The problem is we pass up these good things, these good rewards God has for us, and we settle for the cheap imitations that the world offers us. These cheap, cheap imitations. You know, it's like the time I was driving down the road and I was really, really hungry and I kept looking for a good place to stop and eat. And finally, I just caved in and stopped at McDonald's for lunch. Okay, that's all I had. And then I got back in my car and like at the very next exit, I saw a mighty fine burgers. And I was like, oh, killing me. It was too late, right? I had already settled for the cheap imitation. My apologies to you McDonald's fans out there. <clears throat> Trust me, mighty fine's much better. Try it sometime. Here's a quote for you. It's been said, you're only gonna do what God wants you to do if you believe God pays better dividends than the world pays. See, nobody is gonna do something for nothing. Folks, we should gravitate toward whatever pays the best dividends. And you want the good news? God promises the highest return on your investment. Man, it's so good that 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. No matter how great you think it'll be in heaven one day, your mind hasn't even scratched the surface of the grandeur and the pleasure that awaits you. And I'm guessing God must be amazed at how we settle for the mud pies of this world when he offers us something so much better, infinite joy. Now I need to clarify a few things about God wiring us to pursue pleasure. These are really important. First of all, Pursuing pleasure is not the same as having fun. Okay, I'm not talking about just doing whatever feels good in the moment. Oftentimes, we have to sacrifice what is fun, what is easier in the short term, so that we can get greater satisfaction in the long run. We all know about this, right? If I want to be in shape and have abs, I have to sacrifice my desire to eat 10 York peppermint patties after every meal. Okay? I'd love that. Can't do that. But you see, the reason we deny ourselves in the short term is so that we can get what's best for ourselves in the long term. And we're all wired this way. You know, as Pascal said, even the person who hangs himself is pursuing pleasure, right? He wants to find peace from his pain and he's banking on the fact, he's betting on the fact that the pain of hanging himself will be worth the pleasure of being free from his life of suffering. Second, 
Pursuing pleasure requires discipline and sacrifice. I mean, as Christians, we are called to discipline ourselves, to deny ourselves certain pleasures. But the reason we do that is so that we can find greater fulfillment in God. So I may sacrifice my desire to, I don't know, watch a football game in order to help out a friend. But in the long run, I'm gonna end up with greater joy, greater satisfaction if I help out that friend in need. It is more blessed to give than to receive. God doesn't just want us to deny ourselves pleasure. That's not his MO. He wants us to deny ourselves certain pleasures in the short run so that in the long term, we can get what we want the most. But that takes discipline. That takes sacrifice. Check out these scriptures where God encourages us to pursue the greater pleasure, the greater reward. Over in Hebrews 11, God says the reason Moses gave up the treasures and pleasures of Pharaoh's palace is because he was looking ahead to his reward. I mean, Moses could have had it really sweet here on earth, but he was looking ahead to his reward in heaven. Did you know that even Jesus sought reward as his motivation? Now look at Hebrews 12 too. It says that Jesus endured the cross by focusing on the joy set before him. And he was looking forward to the pleasure of being reunited with his father. That's what kept him going, that promise of reward. And then finally, take a look at Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. Here's a key term. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's interesting, according to this verse, it's impossible to please God unless you believe he's a rewarder. So if pursuing that, which is ultimately gonna give us the best result, the best pleasure, the greatest reward is somehow selfish or sinful, why would God call you to do it? The answer is he wouldn't. But God does call us to steer clear of worldly pleasures. Okay, that's my second point, write this down. Worldly pleasure is fleeting and it will not fulfill. Say, what are worldly pleasures? Worldly pleasures are the mud pies that many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, settle for in life. They're the cheap imitations that try to fill the void, the longing we all have for real joy. And if you look over in the book of Ecclesiastes, through the life of Solomon, God has given us a demonstration of the futility of seeking after worldly pleasures, that worldly pleasure is fleeting and will not fulfill. In Ecclesiastes 2.1, Solomon kind of lays out his purpose statement. Goes like this. <clears throat> this is Solomon talking. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Solomon is basically saying, I'm gonna try everything the world has to offer. And people, he did. Okay, in verse two, he tries laughter. Right? He surrounds himself with the funniest comedians of his day, Jimmy Fallon in his living room, okay? In verse three, he turns to drinking. He throws one party after another. In verse four, he begins to focus on work and achievement, accomplishments. He becomes a workaholic, totally consumed with success. Okay, then in, in verse seven, he kind of flips it around. He, he gets all these servants to be at his beck and call, tries relaxing, idleness. In verse eight, he amasses just incredible wealth. Some have estimated that Solomon's assets would total trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars in today's market, more than anybody else. In verse eight, he also acquires the best entertainers there. He brings Hollywood into his home, so to speak. In verse eight, he turns to sex as a means of pleasure. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Good night, okay? 
Enough said, all right? I'll just leave that be. Wow. In verse 12, he even tries to indulge himself in, in wisdom, intellectual pursuits. And basically, verse 10 sums it all up. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Can you imagine that? I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And Solomon was the happiest, most joyful, fulfilled man who ever walked on planet earth, right? Now, guess again. No need to guess. Take a look at verse 17. Solomon cries out, so I hated life. Really? All of that. And he says, I hated life. His summary of all that he had done, from the pursuit of wisdom to the overindulgence in wine and women, he sums it all up this way. He says, it's all meaningless, vanity, foolishness, depending on the translation. In fact, that phrase, foolishness, vanity, meaningless, it's used 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Folks, no man or woman today will ever have the combination of wisdom and power and wealth and influence that Solomon had. God made him the wisest man who ever lived. God prospered him and allowed him to demonstrate the futility of chasing after worldly pleasures, I believe, as an example for us today, that those things will never satisfy the deepest longing in our soul. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, says this, the world has an inconsolable longing. It tries to satisfy the longing with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, Stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, etc. But the longing remains. What does this mean? What does it mean? It means we are searching for something, but it won't be found apart from God and his pleasures, his rewards. C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's good. Leads me to my third and final point. Lasting pleasure is found only in God. It's true. Lasting pleasure is found only in God. The deepest, most enduring pleasure is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. And here's the key to everything I'm saying here. Our quest is not simply joy. It is joy in God. Our quest is not simply pleasure. It is finding pleasure in God. God is the end of your search for pleasure, not the means to some other end. And if we try to use God like a holy vending machine to get things that'll please us, it'll never work. Because in the final analysis, that which ultimately satisfies the deepest longing in our heart is none other than God himself. People, our exceeding joy is the Lord. Not the streets of gold, not the reunion with relatives, nor any blessing of heaven. Those things are all good, but they're just the icing on the cake. And Solomon, he came to this exact same conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. He said, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink, and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Hmm. Solomon acknowledges that there is pleasure in eating, there is pleasure in working, there is pleasure in playing, 
But apart from God, none of those things are going to satisfy the longing of your heart. It's been said that the infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by an infinite God. The infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by an infinite God. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a good one. Delight yourself, people, in the Lord. And when we finally get that and begin to seek our pleasure in him, then we can eat and drink and find enjoyment in life. And I got to tell you, that joy begins here on earth, but a big part of the package of joy and pleasure, it awaits us in heaven. And this too is by God's design. I mean, there's always going to be a groaning. There's always going to be this longing that exists inside of us. That, my friends, is heaven. And it's there so that we'll set our hearts, our affections on God, on eternal things, that we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, we can find joy here on earth even in the midst of difficulties. I mean, writing from prison, Paul said this, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's an imperative in the Greek, as strong a command as they come. God is saying, you, be filled with joy, with a big exclamation point at the end. And it's not that the suffering itself is joyful or pleasurable. It's the fact that even in the midst of suffering, God's gonna redeem it. He's gonna bring about good, and the end game is going to be rewards. Rewards one day in heaven. So let me close with this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, I'm telling you, you can rest assured that you're going to heaven. You have eternal life and nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. That's a promise. But the quality of your life here on earth and the future life in heaven, that's going to be determined by what you do with the few years you have here on this planet. God wired you to pursue what's best for yourself, to pursue pleasure, peace, satisfaction, but please don't settle for the mud pies that this world offers. The deepest, most enduring joy is found only in God. Not from God, in God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would embrace these truths. These are so, so crucial. And I know for myself for years, I struggled with being sure, my assurance in you. And I know the peace and the joy and the freedom that came as I studied the scriptures and I saw your promises that over 150 times you made it abundantly clear that salvation is by faith alone. And then you don't give me a promise and then take it back. You don't promise something and and then change your mind. And when you say that nothing can separate us from your love, I believe that. And I thank you for that. And I thank you that you don't traffic in fear to try to gain our obedience. That your gift is free. It's unconditional, as is your love for us. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they could just rest in that assurance that they could know that they know that they know that they are yours. And they would serve you not to prove something to you, but to demonstrate their love for you out of gratitude for what you've done. And God, we recognize that you have wired us to go after what's best for ourselves, but that's not just what's best in the moment. It's not just having fun. Most of the time, we have to sacrifice what's easiest 
We have to discipline ourselves to go after the greater rewards. So God, I pray that we would learn from people like Moses, people like Solomon, Lord, that we would recognize that worldly pleasure is fleeting. It's not going to fulfill. And that your treasures, your dividends are better than anything else. And in fact, we can't even begin to enjoy anything really and truly apart from you. That our exceeding joy is just being in a relationship with you. And as we enjoy that, you bless us in a multitude of ways. So God, again, I thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you for how they speak to us. Thank you for how they minister to our hearts. And I pray that we would take these truths and live by them. That we would be grounded in our walk with you and that our eyes would be fixed on your great rewards. That we would look ahead to what you have in store for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.